Hello, I'm Shane Hartsfield, pastor of Beaver Baptist Church. Thank you for listening to our weekly podcast. If you have any questions about what it means to follow Christ or questions about our church, direct you to our website, beaverbaptist.com, for our contact information. Weekly, we study exegetically through books of the Bible. And now, join us as we dive into today's passage. My dad has been working on, or at least talking about working on, uh, converting our old home videos from when I was a kid from from VHS and digitizing them, you know, getting them on a computer. I remember when I was when I was smaller, younger, him him doing the same thing with his family's old eight tracks, you know, the old eight tracks that they had when he was a kid and putting those on VHS. That's just how technology goes, right? It just moves on along. I remember when I was when I was in middle school, I got a pager, you know? Y'all with me? Uh, the kids are like, what is that? Uh, but I got a page. When I started going to hang out with my friends by myself, I got a pager so my parents could page me if they needed something from me, you know? Uh, and then not long after that, one of my buddies that was pretty well-to-do, uh, his family got a car phone. You know, it was about, about as big as this pulpit. It sat in, bet- in, the, in, the, in, the, in between the two front seats of their van. Man, I thought that was the coolest thing. And then not long after that, everybody and their dogs got a cell phone, you know? Um, and now we all have smartphones. That's just the way technology works. It progresses. It's progressed really fast over the course of my relatively short time. But that's how the Bible works, too. The Bible is a progressive revelation, a progressive story, a story that builds on each other, just like technology builds you know, you don't get a car phone without a pager. You don't get a flip phone without a car phone, so on and so forth. We've seen over the last two weeks this story unfold a little bit for us. We're using this, this illustration of the jigsaw puzzle, right? Seeing how these pieces fit together. We want to fit the pieces together so that we can see the bigger story. And, and what's the picture on the box? Jesus. Jesus is the picture on the box. We want to see how these stories fit together so that we can see Jesus more clearly. We've used this rubric, creation, fall, redemption. We're calling this the story of redemption. We've seen over the last two weeks that God is the most high God. He's the one and only God. There's no other God like him. And we are created to worship him, right? But just like Adam and Eve, we haven't worshiped God as we ought we saw last week the effects of sin, the effects that sin has brought into the world. We saw that sin affects our relationships. Primarily, it affects our relationship with God, right? Sin separates us from God. But it also affects our relationships with one another. Our relationships with one another oftentimes are broken, and that's a result of sin. But even in the midst of, of the story of the fall and the effects of sin, we see we saw last week that there's still hope. God still gives hope. What was the first glimmer of hope that he gave us? Remember Genesis 3.15? What is Genesis 3.15? What's the glimmer of hope that we see in that text? The offspring of the woman, right? This is, a, this is spoken to the serpent, 
And God says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, that is the offspring of the woman, will bruise your head and you will bruise his heel. So, so God is gonna send someone, an offspring of the woman, to crush the head of the serpent. It's this first little glimmer of hope we see as the story unfolds. We saw a little bit more of that hope when God calls out this vagabond named Abram, right? Makes some crazy promises to him. And that's where we're going to pick up this week. You know, when we mapped out this series, we sat down, Shane and I talked about this for a while, and we're kind of talking through the different ways of going about doing this. Uh, We kind of plugged in what dates he was going to preach, what dates I was going to preach. And um, and so, so it ends up that you know, Shane gets creation and, and who God is in week one, and, and then last week we talked about the effects of sin. So that gets us up to about Genesis 12. That's when God calls out Abraham, you know. And then this joker says, so Adam, on, on, on the third week, you take us from Abraham all the way to the end of the Old Testament so that, so that I can preach the birth of Jesus on the 23rd, you know. That's what you get when you're the whatever I am, interim associate guy. <laughs> so, so that's what we're doing this morning. We're going from Abraham to the end of the Old Testament, all right? So, so get your game face on, and, uh, and let's roll, okay? Um, so this is how we're going to do it. You see it printed in your worship guide there. Uh, we're going to go from Abraham to Moses to David to the prophets, okay? Abraham, Moses, David, the prophets. We're just flying over, you know, flying over the Old Testament, to get us to Bethlehem. You know, if you've ever flown over the Rockies, some of y'all are going to fly over the Rockies here in a couple of weeks, next week or something. Uh, if you've ever flown over the Rockies, sometimes, sometimes as you're flying over a big mountain range, you can see these peaks peak up above the cloud line. That's what we're going to do. We're going to fly over, and we're just going to look at some of these peaks. And, and we want to see how they all fit together, how they're all one mountain range. We want to see how the pieces link up and tell this story. They fit together in a lot of different ways, but we're going to key in on this expectation that was there from the very beginning, right? From the garden, all the way back to the garden. We have this expectation that God is going to send a rescuer, a serpent crusher, somebody to deliver us from the curse, the effects of sin, So we'll see from Abraham to Moses to David to the prophets how this expectation continues to grow. We just sang about it. Come now long expected Jesus. The expectation grows and grows. And the tension grows with it. Sin brings this tension in our lives. And as we see the expectation grow, so grows the tension. So let's review real quick this These promises that God made to Abraham in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth, all the nations, all the peoples, of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram departs, journeys as God shows him. If you ever need any encouragement that you're just you're not you're kind of unsure you're where you need to be, Abraham had no idea where he was going. 
You ever thought about that? He had no idea where he was going. He just went as God told him. So he departs, journeys as God shows him. And then look at verse 7. This is 12, 7. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your, what? To your offspring, I will give this land. To Abraham's offspring. There's an offspring of Eve who's going to crush the serpent's head. There's an offspring of Abram that's going to receive this promised land. And then as Shane showed showed us last week in Genesis 22, Abraham and Sarah finally have this promised son, the son of this promise, Isaac. But then God tells him to go up on a mountain and slaughter him, right? But just as Abraham trusted, God provided. The tension is rising, but God is providing. And so after the ram is substituted in the place of Isaac in Genesis 22 on Mount Moriah, God renews his covenant promises to Abraham. He says in Genesis 22:17 17 and 18, I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. What's the repeated phrase? Offspring. Why? Why? Because there's this expectation, right? There's this expectation that God is going to send somebody to rescue. God is going to send somebody to crush the serpent's head. The promises are progressing. We've moved from pagers to car phones, right? And then we come to Exodus. Flip there with me. Look at Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, verse 7 of Exodus chapter 1 says this, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. The people of Israel were what? Fruitful and increased. What was the first command that God gave Adam in the garden? You remember? Be fruitful and multiply. Yeah, maybe that one came before it. But he commanded Adam to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 1, 27, 1, 28. Then in, in, in Genesis 8, when Noah gets off the ark, what's God tell him to do? Go and be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Genesis 8, 17. And what did God promise Abraham? I will make of you a great nation. Your offspring will be too numerous to count. So, so Exodus begins, we read Exodus 1, 7, and we think, hey, God's promises are coming true. The people of Israel were fruitful and multiplied. Abraham's descendants, Abraham, Abraham's offspring, filled the land. But read the next verse, Exodus 1, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. You can go back, Joseph is the great-grandson of Abraham. You can go back at the end of Genesis to read that account and why that kind of matters to this story if you're not familiar with it. 
But there arose this new king, and he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. But the more they were oppressed, the more Israel was oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Now remember, 30,000 foot view, right? We're just seeing the peaks. It's like we're working on this jigsaw puzzle and we're, 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 we've started on this one section and then once you start on a section, you just try to build on it from there, right? We're just trying to build this puzzle and see how the pieces fit together. You know, sometimes I think with Old Testament stories like the Exodus or Noah and the Ark, sometimes we just pick that piece of the puzzle and kind of just drop it on the, on the table where we think it might go. But we want to see how they fit together. We want to see how they link up and paint this bigger picture for us. So how does this story of Exodus connect? We already saw that Exodus 1-7 takes us back to the garden, right? To God's command to Adam to be fruitful and multiply. But just like in the garden, there's this opponent, this adversary, what, what does this adversary do in Exodus? What's his first move? How does, how does Pharaoh attempt to scale back the, the multiplication of Israel? You keep, you keep reading, he, he, he tries to kill all the boys, right? In, in the rest of Exodus chapter 1 and on into chapter 2, look at Exodus 1.16. Pharaoh says to the midwives of the Hebrew women, Exodus 1.16, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. What's he doing? What's Pharaoh doing? He's trying to cut off the offspring of Israel. You with me? This is not a coincidence, Right? But it, it doesn't work. Pharaoh's plan is thwarted because the Bible says the Hebrew women midwives feared God and they protect the sons of Israel. And so we're set up for this showdown. The people of Israel continue to increase. Moses comes from this generation of boys that Pharaoh tried to kill. And so we're set up for this face-off between Moses and Pharaoh. Carlton Heston versus Yule Brenner. We're ready for it. God calls out Moses to, to rise up to deliver his people, to rescue them, to redeem them from slavery. And the king of the most powerful nation on the earth, Pharaoh, stands in the way. Y'all know the story, so we're not going to go into great detail about it, but just a couple of more things to help us put these pieces together. What's the last plague that finally does get Israel out of Egypt? The death of the firstborn son. The death of the firstborn son, yeah. Every house that didn't have the blood of the lamb over the doorpost, God said the firstborn son would be killed. The firstborn son, offspring. In Exodus 4, God says to Moses, 
Exodus 4, 22 and 23. You can flip the page and look at that. Read it on the screen with me. God says to Moses, you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So Pharaoh tries to stamp out Israel's growth by killing off their firstborn sons, by cutting off the offspring. But now God says, let my son Israel, let my son go, or else I'm going to kill yours. This is the seed of the serpent versus the seed of the woman played out on the stage of history. And then to top it all off, do you, do you know what the, what the symbol of the Pharaoh was? What he wore on his crown? Look at this picture with me. This is the prince of Egypt. On the top left, good old Yule Brenner there. Kids, if y'all don't know why the old folks are chuckling, uh, you, you should go watch the Ten Commandments. Um, and then this is, if you don't like Hollywood art that much, this is Egyptian art. What's, what's on their crown, every single one of them? A cobra, a serpent. You think, you think this is happenstance? No, no. Satan, the serpent of old, he's the one that received this Genesis 3.15 promise, right? It's a promise to us, but it's a curse to him. He's trying to get this serpent-crushing offspring. He's trying to get to this offspring of the woman before he gets his own head crushed. Right, so on the, one hand, on the one hand, Moses does crush the head of the serpent, doesn't he? Right? These cats follow him into the Nile and all get, no, sorry, into the Red Sea and, and all get drowned, Pharaoh and his army. But on the other hand, just as we've seen in the narratives of Genesis, just as we've seen in our own lives, sin is always crouching at the door, isn't it? Israel gets set free, they get on the other side of the Red Sea and immediately start grumbling and complaining, even wishing themselves back into slavery. And Moses himself even proves that that he is not this promised seed of the woman. But the promises of God continue to unfold. They continue to progress. God does make Israel into a great nation. They eventually conquer the land that he promised to Abram and his offspring. But just like the men at Babel, who wanted to make a name for themselves, right? Remember that story last week? They gathered together to make a name for themselves. Israel eventually decides that they want to be like the nations around them. They want to make a name for themselves by having a great king to rule over them, so they demand a king. Samuel warns them against this and says this is not a good idea, but the people persist and say, give us a king so that we can be like the nations around us. As a point of application here, The temptation to make a name for ourselves is as old as the day is long, isn't it? It's in all of our hearts. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want, to, we want the glory. 
We want the renown. We want the praise. We want the honor. We want to make a name for ourselves. Uh, sometimes that's, that's not a bad thing, right? I mean, he's, God says to Abram, I will make your name great. He says the same thing to David. We'll see that in a second. I will give you a great name. It's not wrong to want to have a good reputation, right? Some of you, you make, you make a living based on your reputation to some degree. You do good, honest work, right? That's not what I mean, but, but if, if our desire is that we get all the accolades, that we get the glory, the outcome of that is always destruction. The outcome of that is always failure and falling. We see that happen in the story of Israel. They demand a king because they wanted to be like everybody else. Having God as their king wasn't good enough for them. We think, man, that's, that sounds silly. We, we act the same way. Sometimes having God as our king isn't enough. We'd never say it, you know. We'd never say it like that, but we act like that sometimes. So God gave Israel what they wanted. They get a king, King Saul, right? He looked the part. He started off pretty good, but he had a wicked heart. He had a wicked heart, and so God rejected him as king. And then he calls out another to replace him, a rather unimpressive, unlikely king, the shepherd boy David, right? Shepherd boy David. Turn to 2 Samuel with me. This is the text that Kayla read for us. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, this, this promise that God makes his anointed one, the Lord's covenant with David. So David was anointed as a small boy in 1 Samuel, and then by the time we come to 2 Samuel chapter 7, he's ready to take the throne. And if if we had time, we could trace out how all of God's promises, how all of God's promises to Abraham are progressing, getting developed in these promises he gives to David. The promise of land, the promise of becoming a great nation, the promise of blessing. But we're going to continue to kind of hone in, focus in on this promised seed, this promised offspring. Did you hear that in verse 12 when Kayla read that for us? When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, and I will establish his kingdom. Who's this talking about? We talked about this in our Wednesday night Bible study on this past Wednesday, the students. I know we've talked about this in small group recently. Who's this talking about? Who's the offspring of David? Solomon, right? Solomon, yeah. He's the one who, who builds the house of God. He's David's son who comes after him, who builds the temple. So Solomon is the immediate fulfillment of this promise to David. He builds God's house. He's the wisest king there was, right? But, but he has the same problem as the rest of them and the rest of us. Sin-stained heart. He too had a wicked, sinful heart. He committed iniquities, and just like the text says in verse 14, he's disciplined by the Lord. 
The kingdom splits, right? Solomon's son, Rehoboam. The kingdom splits under his rule into the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, and then civil war breaks out. And then several generations later, both the northern and the southern kingdoms fall to foreign invaders. Israel is carried off into slavery once again. So it's like we've come full circle, right? They get delivered out of slavery. They get taken to the promised land. They conquer the land. But sin is ever crouching at their door. They're not faithful to the Lord. They turn to other gods. And so God disciplines them and Kingdoms are overthrown, and they're taken back into slavery. So there they are in slavery, longing for this redeemer to come, longing for rescue, longing to be delivered, just like the people in Israel cried out to be delivered. But did you catch the emphasis in in these promises to David? Did you catch the The emphasis on the duration of his throne. Verse 13, I will establish the throne of his kingdom for how long? Forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. I think he's trying to make a point, isn't he? Three times he repeats it. Forever, forever, forever. David's throne will last forever. So, Solomon is the immediate fulfillment of these promises, but Solomon doesn't live forever, right? So there's got to be someone else. There's got to be another king who's going to come, a king like David, a king to rule, a king to shepherd the people of Israel. This is where the prophets come in. So we move from Abraham to Moses to David to the prophets, Most of the prophets come during this period of Israel's history, during the time of the kings, and then when the kingdom splits, and then when they're carried off into slavery or exile, right? So you have prophets during all these points bringing God's word to the people. And and there continues to be this growing expectation of a deliverer like Moses, the offspring of Abraham that will make our nation great again, that we may be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. A king like David, this expectation of a Davidic king to come and rule the people again. But still, there's this rising tension too, right? Because of sin, indwelling sin remains. The people have been unfaithful to God. Their desire The same desire that led them to demand a king, that desire has persisted. They want to be like the people around them. And so they they worship the gods of the other nations. They're unfaithful to the Lord. They don't worship him alone. But just like like all the way back to Genesis, right? Genesis 3, I mentioned this a moment ago. Genesis 3 is a curse to the serpent, right? It's a pronouncement of judgment on the serpent. And yet there's this glimmer of hope. The prophets are do, do the same thing. They pronounce judgment on the people for their disobedience. They warn them, turn from your wicked ways and follow God or else. 
But in the midst of these judgments, in the midst of these warnings, there are these glimmers of hope, these flickers of hope. Turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah is probably the prophet where these flickers of hope shine the brightest, right? Especially when we think about Christmas. Isaiah chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. God is saying to the people of Israel through the prophet Isaiah, I don't want your sacrifices. They're an abomination to me. They are vain offerings, it says in verse 13. Your incense is an abomination to me. And then look at verses 15 through 17. He says, when you spread out your hands, I, this is God speaking, will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. As a, as a quick application here, did you catch that last, those last phrases? Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. This is why we take kids and the students to visit nursing homes. I heard this, that was, a, was kind of a heart check, a reality check for some of our kids yesterday. This is why we do foster care, right? Bring justice to the fatherless. Yeah, yeah. This this is not uh, you know caring for the needy and 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 bringing justice to those who are oppressed. That's not some that's not some political liberal agenda. That's the that's the responsibility of God's people. Justice, mercy. So God didn't want Israel's sacrifices. They were an abomination to him because they didn't have repentant hearts, right? They they were bringing their sacrifices, but they were going right back out and living like the world. God didn't want anything to do with that. They were stained by the world. You remember remember that the verse in James 1? James 1 says that pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Yeah, he got that from Isaiah. It's a theme throughout the prophets. Jesus picks up on it as well. Justice for the oppressed. But Israel wasn't doing that. They were living like the world, but still coming to church on Sunday. But then look at verse 18. There's a glimmer of hope. Again, even even in this pronouncement of judgment, another glimmer of hope. Verse 18, come now, the Lord says, let us reason together. 
Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. God says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean in verse 16. But he knows we can't do that on our own, right? There's no way we can get rid of this stain of sin that's on our hearts. Your sins are like scarlet. They're red like crimson. But God says, I'm going to make you white as snow. I'm going to clean you out. I'm going to wash you. Your sins are like scarlet. They're red like crimson, but they will become as clean as wool. How's he going to do this? How's he going to make us white like snow? We can look at a bunch of different verses in Isaiah that continue to progress this expectation, but turn to Isaiah 40 with me. This is one of my favorite chapters of the Bible, probably. Isaiah 40. Another promise, another really bright flicker of hope. Isaiah 40 begins, Comfort, comfort my people says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. Isaiah 1 says, God God says, your sacrifices are, are vain offerings. Your incense is an abomination to me. I don't want, I don't hear you when you pray. I don't want your sacrifices. Your sins are like scarlet. You make me sick. But then Isaiah 40 comes and he says, comfort a tender word from a loving father. Verse two, her iniquity, this is talking of Israel, her iniquity is pardoned. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. That's just a figure of speech that means that the discipline of the Lord has has reached its completion. They've been punished for their sin. Their punishment is over. They've received from the Lord's hand the punishment that they deserved. It's, it's kind of like, like when your kids disobey you and you discipline them, right? And especially when they're little, a lot of times you just need to, to hold them and let them cry and remind them, speak a, a tender word of comfort to them. I, I disciplined you because I love you. We need this tender word of comfort from God, don't we? We're all like Israel. We're all stained by sin. We sang just a minute ago one of my favorite Christmas songs, O come all ye faithful, joyful and triumphant. But the reality is, is that a lot of times our faith is lacking, isn't it? A lot of times we're not joyful and triumphant. We're more like angry and defeated. If that's you this morning, this this is a word of comfort from God. Christmas is for you. This word is for you, the weary, the heavy laden, the downtrodden and depressed. Look at verse 3. A voice cries out, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, 
and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Some of us, that, this text is kind of ringing familiar, right? John the Baptist says this of his own ministry as he prepares the way of the coming, for the coming Messiah. The glory of the Lord is coming. It's going to be revealed. And this time it's not a private show like it was for Moses, right? Moses up on the mountain by himself to receive the word of God and deliver it to the people. It's not a private show this time, though, the prophet Isaiah says. All flesh shall see it. All people will see the revelation of God's glory. And then in verse 6, another voice cries out, right? Verse 3 says a voice cries. Verse 6, a voice says cry but this isn't a sad cry. This is, a, this is a, a proclamation, an announcement. This is the word of comfort from God, a tender whisper. But it's also a bold announcement. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And then verses 6 through 8, the word of the Lord will stand forever. Right? All flesh is like grass. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. That's the, that's the announcement of verses 6 through 8. And then there's another announcement in verse 9, another proclamation. I love this verse. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. So what's the proclamation? What's the announcement here? The Lord comes, right? Behold your God. Who, who is the one proclaiming this announcement? Zion, right? Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift it up, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. The people of God are proclaiming, here comes God. On this side of the cross, we are the ones heralding this good news. We are the ones proclaiming. God came, right? God came. He became one of us. He took on flesh. His name is Jesus because he saves his people from our sins. He, he did what we could have never done. Our sins were like scarlet, they're red like crimson, but he poured out his blood so that we don't have to offer sacrifices anymore because he is the sacrifice. He died so that we might live. Our sacrifices were always going to be an abomination to God. Only Jesus could make the sacrifice that could pay our sin debt. That's the way our Scarlet stains get washed white as snow, friends. So listen to me, Christian, Christian brother and sister. Go tell it on the mountain. 
Lift up your voice with strength. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of what they might, what they might say, what they might think. Lift up your voice and proclaim, Jesus saves the power of salvation for all who believe. That's the good news. Herald it, friends. Herald the good news. Proclaim it. Declare it. Shout it from the mountains. So where's Jesus in the story? Jesus is the story, right? Right? If you miss that, you've been sleeping. He is the coming of God. Behold your God is the announcement. That's Jesus. So let's fly back over the mountains real quick and look at these peaks to see Jesus at the top of every one of them. For the prophets, Jesus is the one the prophets were longing for. For David, Jesus is the the forever king, the offspring of David. Look at Luke 1. This is the angel speaking to Mary. Just before this, she says, don't be afraid, just like it says in Isaiah. Don't be afraid, fear not. Luke 1, 32 and 33, speaking of Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. The promise to David is fulfilled in Christ. He is the forever king. To Moses, right? Jesus is the son of God. God told Moses, Israel is my firstborn son, but Israel failed. They couldn't keep the law. They never had a chance to because they had sin-stained hearts. But Jesus came, took on flesh, unstained by sin, perfect in every way, fulfilled the law of God. Jesus is the true Israel, the son of God. To Abraham, Jesus is the offspring of Abraham, the one through whom all the nations of the earth are blessed. Students, y'all, y'all studied the Great Commission this past Wednesday. The last command that Jesus gives his disciples, go to, to whom? To all the, all the nations. Go to all the peoples of the earth and make disciples. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's blessing coming to all the nations. All the way back to Genesis 3.15. Jesus is the promised son of Eve, the promised seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. From Genesis 3.15 to Abraham to Moses to the prophets, the whole point is to point us to Jesus, right? The Old Testament is all looking forward, anticipating, expecting this deliverer, this redeemer. And then the New Testament and us on this side of the cross, we're looking back at him and worshiping him and adoring him. Jesus is the point. The Bible isn't primarily a book of rules. It's not primarily a book of heroes. It does have rules that we live by and heroes that we ought to emulate but the Bible is primarily a story, a collection of stories, true stories. And they all fit together beautifully, perfectly telling this one big story of how God came to redeem his people 
from our sins. Let's proclaim that good news this season, friends. If you don't believe that good news, turn from your scarlet stained sins and turn to Jesus. Trust in him. And he will wash you clean. Thank you for tuning in today. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast if this message has been helpful to you. Again, if you have any questions, go to our website for our contact information and we'll see you next time.